0: Like we said, today is All Saints' Day. Um, November, really, it's November first, but we're we're leaning in a little early. It'll be on Tuesday. Halloween is kind of All Hallows' Eve. It's the eve of All Saints' Day, Um, and sort of leaning into that, I wanted to tell you a story. So there's a, um, you can bring that down a little bit. Um, There's a story of a king. There's a story of a country, Um, and. And a king who collected things, as kings tend to do when they have extra wealth, except what this king collected was not necessarily things, but, but craftsmen. And so he, his, his idea was to have all of the best carpenters and all of the best goldsmiths and all the best metal workers, everything in his palace. And, and one day, the master carpenter and the master goldsmith uh, get into an argument outside of the palace. Whose craft is better? Whose art is greater. And they're fighting back and forth, and the goldsmith is saying, All you do is you just carve wood. Who cares about wood? I work with gold. I, I work with the most precious of metals, and I and I take that thing that is that is so valuable and I make it even more valuable. I add value to the most valuable thing. I stretch it out and it's you know it's fragile. You have to be so careful with this thing. And the carpenter is saying, Well, what's so good about working with gold. Gold itself is already valuable. What's really precious and wonderful is to be able to take something that has really no valuable, value at all that you would just walk by in the street. You'd walk by a hunk of wood, but I can take that hunk of wood that everybody else would walk by, and I can turn it into something that people desire. And the king hears this, hears this argument going on, and you see, he says, what's going on here? And they tell them what they're fighting about. And he sees an opportunity. He says, this is great. I want you to go. You have one week. I want you to make the best thing that you can make. Come back, and we're going to see who really is the master smith. Who's the real master craftsman here? And so they do. They come back in a week, and the goldsmith has a bundle, and, and the carpenter has a bundle. And the goldsmith takes out his bundle, and he unwraps the blanket. And he says, can you get a, can you get a big vat of water for me? I need a big, like, like a, basically an indoor pond. And so the king, who's sitting there with, with his, his wife, uh, they're sitting on this bench, and then his son is standing behind them. And they, uh, they send off, and, and they bring in this, this indoor pond, and he takes out of his bundle a golden duck. And, and he takes this golden duck and places it in the water, and it starts to swim. It starts to swim and, and paddle and, and splash around a little bit like ducks do. And it even turns its head and it's cleaning its feathers. and, it, and it, I mean, this duck looks alive and, and the queen is frustrated. She's looking at it going, this is not a gold duck. This is just a duck that you've painted gold, right? And so, so the goldsmith is offended. He says, I can't believe that you would say that I just painted a duck. Ask me to take it apart and I'll take it apart and I'll put it back together. And so he does. He unscrews the wings, and he takes off the head and all of this stuff, and they see that it really is just a golden duck. He puts it back together, and it works just as well as before, if not better. Wow, that's pretty good. Carpenter, what you got? The carpenter takes out his bundle, and in his bundle, he has not a duck, but an eagle. And it's it's an eagle that is so skillfully crafted and so delicately carved that it looks real. And he says, if you would, would you be willing to open the window for me? So he opens the window, and they notice, on the, on the eagle, they notice this little screw. And this is from before computers and all of this kind of thing. And So he, he takes this screw, and he actually climbs up onto the eagle, and he, he turns the screw to the right, and, and the eagle goes up and up and up and actually carries him up out of the window. And he flies around a little bit, and then he turns the screw to the left, and he comes down through the window and lands again. And the king and the queen are amazed, right? You've taken wood and you've taken you've carved this eagle and you you actually flew out of the window. And then came back in. I mean it's it's incredible. And while they're deliberating about who is greater, the eagle or the duck, the prince who has been silently standing there the whole time runs and jumps onto the eagle and grabs that screw, turns it to the right, takes up out of the window and is off. And now the king and the queen are in They're in a mess because this son who they cared about and loved and protected his whole life all of a sudden is flying hundreds of feet above the ground, and he's up above the clouds, and and his curls are are waving in the air, and he's running his feet along the top of the clouds, and they say, if my son doesn't come back in two weeks, their anger just boils over carpenter, you're going to be hanged, and they send the carpenter off to prison to wait and hope. Well, the prince, flying through the air, ends up in this, in this other land, in this, in this other country. He sees a, a, a hut down. He's outside of the bounds of his parents' uh, domain, turns the screw to the left, comes down, and lands at the hut and knocks on the door. Old woman comes to the door. He says, look, I, I'm not from here. I need a place to stay. Um, I just landed, so to speak, uh, in in your country and and I would I'd love just a place to stay and and you know I just want to find out what's going on here what is it what is it about this place and she tells him well this is a pretty normal country except for one thing which is that we have a princess who lives in that tower that you can see far off in the distance and they say that she's the most beautiful princess who has ever lived he says is this true is she really the most beautiful princess she says i don't know i don't know i've never seen her she's been locked in that tower her whole life sounds Intriguing to the prince who just flew in on an eagle. And so the next morning after waking up, he decides, I'm going to go see her. And he flies up to the tower on his eagle and he lands in her window. And she, who has never seen anybody else in her life except the one person, the nanny and her parents who have been the nanny who's been given to take care of her, he, here comes this handsome young prince knocking on her window. And she opens it up and he comes in and they chat for a little bit. And then before long, he says, you know, I mean, you're here and I'm here. You want to get married? I mean, it doesn't seem like there's a lot of people coming in your way, and I don't have a lot of people coming my way, so maybe we should just do this thing. And she says, That sounds great. I'd love to marry you. And as soon as she says that, in comes the the evil nanny who's been watching over her whole life, and she's seen the whole story. And she runs off. She scares the prince out of the window. She runs off and tells the king and the queen. They're so upset. They bring soldiers. And they track down the young prince, throw him into prison. And he sits there in prison waiting for his execution because he dared to trespass. He dared to enter into the tower that nobody was to enter into. On his last day on earth, the executioner comes in and he says, can I have just one wish? As he's walking toward the gallows standing up on the wooden platform, and the rope is being lowered. He says, but I have just one wish. Can I just have that bundle that I brought with me? So they bring him the bundle. Immediately, he's onto the eagle, turns the screw to the right, flies off of the gallows, up to the tower to get the princess. They fly off back to their kingdom. They land in the original kingdom just in time to save the carpenter They get married and celebrate. Their wedding feast. It's a good story, right? And it has everything to do with our readings today. <laughs> <laughs> you, you paid attention to the readings, right? Ephesians 1 and Revelation 7 in particular. Not to mention Matthew 5, the, the Beatitudes. Blessed are the poor, blessed are those who mourn. Well, Revelation 7 gives us this image. It, it's really, in, in the book of Revelation, it's actually kind of a break. It's a sort of breath um, in, in the story. Where all of a sudden, all this important stuff has happened in chapters 4, 5, and 6. And then John, who's, who's writing this, this revelation that he's receiving from Jesus Christ, kind of gives this, there's sort of like a song break. You know, like an intermission. If you watch Ben-Hur or something like that, they're like, this movie is too long. You guys need to stretch your legs, right? Well, Revelation 7 sort of serves that same purpose. All of a sudden, all of this stuff has been happening, and then you get to chapter 7, and kind of nothing happens. He just describes everything as it is. He says, here's all the saints, and here's all the people gathered around the throne in heaven, and they're wearing white robes, and interestingly, it says, they're waving palm branches. Kind of sounds like Palm Sunday. And they're singing and praising, holy, holy, holy is the Lord who is worthy, who is worthy, who is worthy. Worthy is the lamb who was slain. It's just honor and glory and praise. And he says to the angel who's there with him, explaining everything, who are these people? The angel eventually tells him, these are those who have conquered. They have washed their robes white in the blood of the lamb is really bad laundry advice, right? It's not how laundry works, but it is how salvation and holiness works. Ephesians 1 does a similar thing. It gives us a picture of life, not from the middle where we're living it, and not from the beginning where we're starting it, but it gives us a picture of life of his great might. Paul gives the Christians in Ephesus, he gives them a vision of life from the end. Just like John gives the Christians in Asia Minor, who he's writing his letter to, a vision of life from the end. That if you persevere, if you conquer, and and you don't have to go conquer a country, if you conquer sin and death, By allowing Jesus to conquer it in you, this is who you will be. This is who you will become. This is what things look like on the other side. It gives clarity to the struggle that we're in the midst of. Do you see that? Because when you're in the middle of the struggle, when you're in the middle of the fight, and if you lose sight of what's at the end, it's so easy just to give up. We talked in Sunday school today about a world that often does not know where it's going. And because the world so much of the time doesn't know where it's going, what do we do? Eat, drink, be merry, right? And sometimes we have slightly more sophisticated versions of that. Sometimes our our sophisticated versions of that are visit every national park, right? Or, I don't know, go to every hemisphere. Or visit every continent. I mean, we create these bucket lists that in themselves mean nothing, but what they do is, they're fine, but they just don't actually mean anything. What they do, they give us something to work toward. They give us some sense of, oh man, if I can rack up these experiences, if I can just sit and enjoy my grandchildren, if I can see my neighborhood change in the way that I want it to change, then all of this will have been worth it. All of this will be valuable because there's, there's no ultimate end on the other side. There's no thing that we're ultimately moving toward. There's no sainthood that we're actually moving into. There's a author, Christian author from my earlier days who said this. His name is John Eldridge, and he wrote a lot about like men and women and stuff. But he says, every man desires a battle to fight, an adventure to live, and a beauty to rescue. Now, we could sit around and talk about why that's reductionist and all that kind of stuff. <laughs> and I, I get that. But he's putting his finger on something, which is that we are meant to live for something. Right? We're built for purpose and for meaning. And, and if we sort of criticize and cynicize our way out of purpose and meaning, we don't somehow become happy on the other end of that. We become rootless. The prince in the story of the wooden eagle, he surprises us. He does this kind of crazy thing. He's here standing behind his parents. It seems like he's probably done that his whole life. And then all of a sudden, he's just running and jumping on the e- like. Up to that point, the story's not even about him. And then all of a sudden, it sort of switches and changes, and he becomes the focus. Right? Out of nowhere, he does something seemingly out of character, but why? Because he needs an adventure to live. And along the way of that adventure to live, what does he end up doing? Finding a beauty to rescue. Right? He, he, he enters into a place where all of a sudden he's got something to offer. He's got an edge to find. And in the faith, in this world, What we Christians sometimes miss is that we've got an edge to find. We've got an adventure to walk out. We've got a battle that we need to be fighting in the world that the church has been called to. And and there's a reason, there's a way that we're called to fight that battle. In fact, so much of that book of Revelation is about that very battle. Will you be victorious is the question. You're going to face something. Will you be victorious? Because Christians, we discover that as soon as we come into the faith, we realize we're asked to do some strange things. We're asked to believe some strange things. We're asked to live in some strange ways. That's what Matthew has to say. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they'll be satisfied. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will be taken advantage of. No, blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. This this is totally upside down to the way that the world would have us to live. It's a story that you can really only understand once you're inside of it. And it's a story of plain people living extraordinary lives by God's grace. It's a story of being either a golden duck or a wooden eagle, and here's what I mean. Remember what the craftsmen were fighting about at the beginning? Who's better, the goldsmith or the carpenter? The goldsmith makes something beautiful even more beautiful. The carpenter takes something plain and makes it not only beautiful, but functional. Something that gives life and beauty. Here we sit on All Saints Day. And oftentimes when we think about holiness, when we think about sainthood, we think it's for the golden ducks. We think sainthood is for the people who already have it all together, who don't get tempted into difficulty, they just have like a natural constitution where it's like, yeah, I don't know, money. Eh, it's fine, I guess. Right, or they're just people who like never kinda got pulled toward lust, who never dealt with envy toward their neighbors, who were never bothered by pride. Like We just think that they were already this sort of valuable thing. They had all of it like built into them when they were born, and then they sort of come into the world and they spend 70 or 80 years just, you know, getting made into a nice little duck. Right? And that's great. People who like come with a good constitution and as 18-month-olds are like already just sitting and praying nicely with their hands folded. Like that is wonderful. And I'd be happy to adopt your children if that's who they are, because that's not my children. Uh, <laughs> and and we, we think sometimes that it's this, it's just this, this outpouring of something that already exists. It's a building out of value that's already there. But I want to suggest, and that's a wonderful sort of sainthood, I want to suggest that, A, that's not the normal form of sainthood. And it may not even be the best form of sainthood. These wooden eagles are a reminder that we live in a world populated by invisible grace, by giants in the faith, who on the surface seem so ordinary, one of my favorites is uh, a guy named John Keeble. Um, he just kind of speaks to my heart for any number of reasons. Um, he was a, a 19th century, so 1800s, kind of, think in America it was like the Civil War era uh, or a little bit before that, 1820s, 1830s. And he, he was in England, um, English priest. He goes to Oxford, um, which... I know today sounds like a big thing. I think at the time, it was a good school, but it was kind of like, where else are you going to go? There's two schools. So he goes to Oxford, and, um, and he does really well in school. He's actually, like, top of his class in multiple categories. Um, he starts writing poetry really seriously. Um, and he sort of takes all of that brilliance and that promise and does an interesting thing with it. Because if you see a really talented and gifted, like, you know, 16, 17, 18, 20-year-old, you're like, man, I just want to follow your career. Like, I just want to know what's going to happen in your life because it looks so great and it's so exciting and I'm I'm just so pumped that one day you're going to be something big and I would have known you here at the beginning, right? And John Keba was that kind of guy. Like, he could have made his mama proud with all of this stuff that he had, but instead he does three things. He does three things with his life. The first is he write a, he writes a book of poems, okay? They're called The Christian Year. It's the best-selling book of poems in England of the century. So all of the 1800s, he writes the best-selling book of poems. But these are wooden eagle poems, okay? They're not like super high and flowery. They're kind of about like, you know, rocks and trees and flowers and stuff, but also church. Um, (laughs) And he sort of takes this stuff and he puts it together and there's 52. So you read one poem every week. Is the idea, and it's supposed to sort of walk you through the year, and it it's not just about the Christian year, it's also about the seasons and all of this kind of stuff. So, you know, you're reading about it's the winter and all of this stuff during Christmas, and he sort of brings those things together, and he just sort of takes what you might think of just sort of like a cute English countryside life, and he just fills it and populates it with the gifts of God. That's beautiful. The other thing he does with his life. He helped start this movement called the Oxford Movement because they were friends at college. Um, And and what that movement did was call the Church of England back to its roots. It called the Church of England away from, at the time, what was really this lust for power, right? This desire to be involved in the politics and everything that was going on in the state. And he actually stands up, it's interesting, this is the first Sunday, or the last Sunday before an election. He stands up right before an election and preaches this big sermon about how everybody ought to vote. I mean, I would get like run out of town if I did this. Um, and, and lets them know like, hey, we are moving in the wrong direction as a nation and we need to get this back together. And, and he spends with his friends, they kind of move into the church and, and they call the church, it's this reform movement, these sort of prophetic voices calling the church back to the heart of the church. Away from Bower and back to worship, right? Away from influence over the king and back into saying, look, we are here for Christ. Let us live Christian lives, much like his book of poems. And then the third and maybe the most significant thing that he does with his life is for 30 years, he's the pastor of a little church in Hursley. I have no idea where that is. I've never heard of the name of this town before I read about John Keeble. From 1836 to 1866, when he dies, he's the pastor of this little parish. And here's what's amazing about his life the people in his church had no idea he was the guy who wrote that book of poems. They had no clue that he was the one who led a national movement to reform the church and bring it back to its roots. He just did the work, he just did the work of a pastor. He walked with his people and he taught the kids. And this is like a different day, but he was was known for teaching Sunday school, like passionately, gathering up the young people in the neighborhood, visiting people who were sick, just doing the everyday kind of work. John Keeble's life to me is this reminder That if we understand what we're doing from this eternal lens, these small things become so big. These small actions of righteousness and holiness that are just the good thing to do in the moment, all of a sudden, they take on this eternal weight. Our big actions start to look so important or unimportant. This is a a passage from his poem for this Sunday, for All Saints Day. Remember, it's, it's kind of autumn in England. And so he writes How quiet shoes the woodland scene, each flower and tree its duty done, reposing in decay serene, like weary men when age is won. Such calm old age as conscience pure and self commanding hearts ensure, waiting their summons to the sky, content to live but not afraid to die. Like he's, I kind of picture him just walking to church and seeing in the trees and the flowers and the grass that's sort of dying into its winter state, the faces and the lives of the people in his church, the saints, who he knows are passing on to heaven, but who maintain and hold that hope. And that line, waiting their summons to the sky, content to live, but not afraid to die. Like, Lord, I'm yours. Lord, I'm yours. Whatever it is, wherever it is. You know, I think of, we were talking about birth stories last night. I think of the lives of probably more than half of you mothers who've sat with kids in the middle of the night and nursed. Just giving yourself just given yourself to somebody else, or those that have given themselves so quietly to another who maybe never said thank you, or never poured back into your life, you didn't get anything out of it. You didn't get any trophies or awards. Content to live, but not afraid to die. Those of you who've sat and talked with a neighbor or a friend or an enemy. Those of you who have forgiven without being asked to forgive. those of you who have allowed yourself to be misunderstood, maybe, like the Beatitudes say, maybe even allowed yourself to be persecuted for the good because you came to understand your life from the end and not from the beginning and certainly not from the middle. You came to understand that what I'm doing here is living toward that robe. I'm living toward that day. I'm living toward that moment when I will be present with Christ and Christ will be all in all. I'm living toward the palm branches and the worship and those who've come through the trial. You know when I was younger I don't I don't know that I'm old enough to like say that, but um, <laughs> but I was before today, I was younger than I am now. And, um, and 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 I used to really have this sense when I would come to these kinds of things of like, ah, oh, man, it's, like it's just escapism, right? Like, it's just trying to get past the difficulty of the moment. And so you kind of throw up this image and you're like thinking about that. Like, one day I'll be in heaven and I'll be good. And that's just a way of like coping with the problems that I'm in right now. And I'm just not there anymore. <laughs> I'm not there anymore. Like, there is... It is possible to do that with these kinds of things, right? Like one day you're just going to come back and everything's going to be good so I don't have to worry about it. It's possible to do that. But I think ultimately what the scriptures are trying to do, what Matthew and Paul and John are trying to get us to do is to set an image that actually kind of pulls us forward through the struggle, that pulls us through the difficulty, that pulls us through the loss, that pulls us through the challenge. And really, what we're saying is not escapism. What we're saying is that these who put on the white robe, these who wave the palm branches, these who worship around the throne, they're not ones who have escaped pain. They're ones who have entered most fully into the pain. They've washed their robes in the blood of Christ. How do you do that? You do that by having your own heart broken and by bringing it to God in prayer. You do it by having your own self challenged and saying, I'm not going to hold back and I'm not going to pull back. Lord, this is all yours. And I'm going to let your blood be the only answer that I have to these problems. I'm going to let your sacrifice be the only thing that I trust will transform and pull me through. Amen, then Timmy. I think in these moments and places, it's so critical that we do say and believe and trust that God is making wooden eagle saints, right? He's crafting something beautiful. He's crafting something functional. He's crafting something incredible out of normal everyday material that other people would pass by. the way that he does it is not by adding on but by stripping off the way that a carpenter that a that a woodsmith carves a piece of wood is not the way you build a wall you don't take a brick and then add another brick and then another brick and then another brick and, another brick and you just stick stuff on top you take that raw piece of wood and you cut into it and you cut it away until there's something inside of it that begins to come out, and you may not have known totally what that thing was at the beginning, but it, it begins to sort of show up in the midst of it, and somehow, even though all you've done is pull material off of this log, it's somehow bigger and better than it was at the beginning. And I love that this story it's about a carpenter, because what did Jesus do for 15 years? As a boy and a young man that learned the trade of carpentry, of pulling off the excess. And you may feel like your life is having exactly that thing happen to you right now. You may feel like Jesus is pulling off something that's not excess, that's very, very necessary. You may feel like God is pulling away a relationship that it's like, no, I, I actually, Lord, I love you. I really need that. Like, can you leave? This thing here. But he's just pulling it off. In the midst of it, you may start to feel a little too small. You may start to feel as you follow Jesus along this way that you're, you're just loving people. You're not doing anything important. But the truth is, in the midst of this, Christ is making a saint. Christ is making an eagle. So view your life from the end, from the perspective of the saint that Christ is making you into, and you'll be able to triumph over all kinds of things. I'm going to read the last stanza of that John Keeble poem and I'm going to ask Cody to come forward and lead us in the table. But I want you to know, remember, he's talking about saints here, and notice the word he uses in this first line. O champions blessed in Jesus' name, Short be your strife, your triumph full, till every heart have caught your flame and lightened of the world's misrule. Ye soar those elder saints to meet, gathered long since at Jesus' feet, no world of passions to destroy, your prayers and struggles o'er, your task all praise.